And then he responded. He quote retweeted me being <laughs> like, it was especially successful if you're the coronavirus. For COVID, yeah. it was really successful. So... Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario, Canada, and on the Big Talker 1067 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website, as always, is consumerchoiceradio.com. You can get all the latest episodes, get the RSS feed for the podcast version, and follow along on the social media nets. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from the Vienna studio with a nice, beautiful green screen behind me that you can't see. And I'm joined and uh, by our returning co-host who had a nice week off up there uh, at the cottage, David Clement. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. I mean, <clears throat> nothing a, uh, a week in Muskoka can't fix. That was uh, quite the vacation, just being able to sit back, relax, not really do too much, enjoy the, the weather, the water, the dock. Uh, it was great. So now I'm ready. I'm back at it. Um, ready to discuss all the things that bother us in the world. Uh, there's a lot that bothered. Yeah, there's a plenty of stuff that happened while you're away. So uh, I know that you are usually keen to check on the newspaper and stuff. But how, how much, uh, yeah, how much reading of the news and stuff did you do while you were there? Not very much. Yeah, not, I didn't turn the TV on once. I mean, I, I saw some things happen here and there on Twitter. Um, I missed the, the first leaders debate, the French one, um, which is probably good because it's... Uh, would, would you even have watched it anyway, David? Uh, no. Actually, do they, do, they, do they simulcast translation? I believe they do. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's as, as an Ontarian, it can be very difficult to watch the the French debate because it's really the Quebec debate. And so you have this entire debate focused on policy that impacts this one province. And then you get one debate for everybody else. Um, so there's, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, 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 it's kind of weird because you'd never have that for any other province. You'd never have like an Alberta debate. Oh, we're going to talk about oil and gas and whatever uh, beef. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's very true. Watching the Quebec one, it's just so strange because then the the Bloc Québécois leader, uh, leader of the kind of separatist party in the federal parliament, is like kind of anointed because he, he is at least in this round like the only native French speaker. So you can tell that he's got a lot more energy and mm -hmm. he's much more fluent and eloquent. And a lot of the he gets so many questions, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just crazy because if you look at the entire country, you know the population and the share of seats and and actually how much they can move things it really isn't much but, i mean i would you know, argue so goes canada i would argue that um the block should not be in the english debate not over linguistics um but realistically the rest of anglophone canada cannot vote for the block they don't run candidates outside of quebec they don't run enough candidates they to... should i mean yeah they could um but they don't <laughs> 
Actually, what I mean, uh, they might they might get some people voting. I don't know, they, Dave, but I heard they're they're sniffing around the GTA looking for candidates like yourself. Well, so uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've I've written articles in the past, by the way, like trying to co-opt uh, the Bloc Québécois because it's it's not it's technically not supposed to be an ideological party. It's supposed to be a very focused on secession and independence, mm-hmm. though it's become incredibly ideological. And it's it's basically your run of the mill social democrat party. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and there's independence, which they really don't talk about much. Uh, it's it's the strangest of affairs. Um, but yeah, that's its own thing. Canadian politics. Uh, we got a lot more coming. <laughs> Election is only two weeks away. Yeah. Yeah. About that. Okay. Good. I already sent off my ballot, so I uh, sent that off, and uh, I think I'll impact my small writing. We'll see. <laughs> Probably not if I'm looking at the numbers, <laughs> but. Uh, that, that's going to be very interesting to follow. I'm seeing a lot of, of back and forth. So on Twitter, we're seeing a lot of criticism of uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, who's having uh, I, apparently some photo ops in hospitals. Yes. I saw that running around. Yeah, weird, weird. Um, and then yeah. I wanted to talk about a, a little uh, a tete-a-tete um, that you had, a little Twitter exchange with his former advisor, uh, apparently he's he's a quote he's quote tweeting you, and you're having a back and forth about uh, one of the conservative proposals. So give give our our listeners a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so Aaron O'Toole um, he announced a policy called Dine and Discover, and what it is is basically once the pandemic is over, once it's safe, um, the there will be a fifty percent rebate on food and non-alcoholic beverages at restaurants from Monday to Wednesday. And it sounds kind of like a quirky policy, but the idea is that you incent once it's safe, you incentivize people to go out to restaurants, and because everything is fifty percent off, essentially, um, people are going to be more likely to go. It's really going to drive business to the hospitality sector, and just kind of help them up off their. Um, behinds because they've been obviously hit pretty hard by the pandemic. And so um, I had written about when the UK did this um, back in the summer, they did their own program that was pretty much similar. And it increased, um, I think there were 64 million meals that were claimed as a result of that policy. And so your liberal partisans were kind of poo-pooing the policy. I think Jerry Butts was like, oh, Aaron O'Toole is just virtue signaling. Um, This could work or it could badly backfire. Almost as if he just didn't understand that, like, they ripped the policy from the Tories in the UK. Like, this has been done. And so I just tweeted. I was like, hey, FYI, this isn't new. The UK implemented it, and it was pretty successful. And then he responded, he quote retweeted me being like, (laughs) it was especially successful if you're the coronavirus. For COVID, it was really successful. (laughs) So, and there's, there's two things here. So one, the policy explicitly states, which I attempted to try and educate him on, that when it is safe. And, and two, if it is not safe for people to go to restaurants now, then why on earth are we having an election? You can't have it both ways. You can't say that, oh, like this would be dangerous if we implemented it now, even though that's not what O'Toole is suggesting. You can't say it would be dangerous if we implemented it now and defend hosting an election and having the prime minister host large in-person gatherings across the country and in many instances breaking whatever the provincial laws are at the time. 
Um, so there's just there's so much hypocrisy here. Um, it it drives me nuts. Um, so yeah, that was the policy. I, under normal circumstances, I don't really like these kind of like oh we're gonna tweak here and tweak there. But at the same time, I mean, I think the hospitality sector has probably been hit the worst of all. Um, and it would be nice to help them get back on their feet because I think the Canadian Federation for Independent Businesses said that something like they have an average, they took on an average of like 180 grand in debt over the pandemic. Um, so it'd be, wow. it'd be nice to help those guys get off their feet. And, and I think only 30% of those businesses. Um, they did a survey for this. Only 30% of those businesses are making more or what they made prior to the pandemic. So 66% of businesses are still underwater. And to your point, this was like a, um, as the Brits would call it, a scheme. Um, so it was 50% of the cost of food and or non-alcoholic beverages eaten in at participating businesses across the UK. It applied all day, Monday to Wednesday, Throughout the month of August, <coughs> sorry, in the year 2020, and the discount was capped at a maximum of 10 pounds mm. per head. Which I think is about 15, <clears throat> 15 bucks or so. I so mean, it was tried, and uh, yeah, I think in the UK it was very successful. I mean, that was the goal, get more people out to restaurants, you know, provide a bit of a boom. Obviously, there are questions about how much government money you're using for this and that. But the problem that we're seeing in the U.S. Uh, for most of the COVID stuff is that the money isn't being distributed at all. Like, people aren't able to get the money. Um, you know, you have all the people who are supposed to be getting it for uh, rent payments and things like this. And the distribution is like under 20% in most areas. Uh, I don't know if it's the state governments that just aren't doing the job, it, or I wonder if it's you don't have you don't have Kevin Costner, uh, you know, doling out the money <laughs> like in this movie. Yeah, in worth. <laughs> great, really separate aside here. Great movie. Anybody listening, I highly recommend the movie Worth on Netflix. Uh, we just watched it. It's all about um, the person who was deemed special master to handle the nine eleven victims compensation fund, and just the process of. Um, trying to compensate the victims of 9-11, and obviously we're approaching the anniversary of 9-11, so it's particular, particularly fitting. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, where were we? <laughs> so um, apparently the, the UK plan uh, was about £840 million pounds, uh, overall, and uh, that's exactly how much was claimed. It was across 78,000 different restaurants throughout the country. Uh, which is a fair amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, here's a here's a policy proposal that is that is put forward at a time that would alleviate many concerns, you know, consumer demand, restaurants failing, all of that. And there's like zero substantive, you know, <laughs> rebuttal from butts. Um, well, no, yeah, that, he, all, all, all he did is showed that either he didn't read the platform Right, so he misunderstood, which he would never oh, probably did not read. Yeah, he, right. but he would never admit this because he's insufferable. Um, so he either didn't read it, or he did know that, and he was just being obtuse because he's trying to score political points, which is also what he does. Own the cons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I think with each passing day, and I say this as someone who was pretty vehemently anti-Trump. Um, with each passing day, liberal partisans mirror Trump supporters 
more and more. Um, and it's a, it's, it is problematic. It is not great out there. No, it's not, it's not good. I actually listened to an interview recently. Uh, there's an author who uh, came out with a book on the pessimism of the American founders, the founding fathers, when they were creating the Republic, he actually went back and looked in their notes and, and letters, and they actually were very, very uh, skeptical that the Republic would even work, that you could even have a, a you know sort of representative democracy over such a huge swath of land. I think it, it applies to Canada as well, just because there'd be so many competing interests. Uh, the partisanship was like a huge deal back then. That was George Washington's big thing. And really, it was so perilous, and it's it's just crazy to think about, you know, how how modern government is today, and we still have all of the same issues and problems, and uh, you know how much of it is about you know people who are being earnest and people who are having real debates and arguments over policy, and how much of it is just rooting for the other team. Maybe it is the Twitter age that makes it worse, uh, but I think overall, average people, average listeners listening to us uh, on the radio or the podcast version, you know, they don't really always buy into that. I think it's it's fun to bandwagon a bit, you know, but yeah, and, can't be the policy. Yeah, and what we're seeing from those in politics is there's very little room to actually concede any common ground. The only person I think I've ever seen do this is a former guest of our show, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who basically tweeted out, he's like, he said, I actually kind of like O'Toole. He's much better on climate. He's much better on this issue. Um, he regularly says that he's pro-choice. Um, I don't really have any concerns there. But I think that we're better. I think that our policies are better on X, Y, and Z. And, I, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, if only we had more people like him of all persuasions, no matter what you your policy kind of orientation is. If you had more of that, you may actually just have a better scenario where... It's not just people sniping at each other with this boat with these bogus. It's like we, it's like Canadian politics has just inherited the worst of what we see elsewhere in the world, and uh, it's it, it really grinds my gears, you know. And you know, it could be behind the scenes that you know they are all buddy buddy, you know, on Capitol Hill or Parliament Hill, and you know, it is it is it is for show a bit, a little bit for the cameras. Well, the Ameri- um, the, we- I will say that the prior I would prior to Trump. Of the American political system, there's a little more room for collaboration. You see people co-sponsor bills. You'd see people reach across the aisle. You still see it more in the Senate now. Um, but in Canadian politics, you just don't see that. It's, it's extremely rare. Mm. Well, we got a new segment coming up. We have Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. He'll be calling in segment two. Uh, David was able to, to scoop him up for an interview. Uh, Looking forward to that, and uh, we'll be right back here on Consumer Choice Radio. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, I have the pleasure of interviewing... of welcoming our next guest, Dr. Sylvain Chalbois. He is the Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, otherwise known as the Food 
professor and arguably Canada's leading scholar on all things food. So, Dr. Schaubois, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. My pleasure. Great. So, I mean, the pandemic um, has obviously been an interesting time in regards to food policy, and we're talking about supply chains and shortages and what's on shelves. But um, one thing that you've been talking a lot about lately is food inflation. And so I just wanted your take on how bad it's going to get and what some of the root causes are. Well, so every year we actually publish uh, Canada's food price report, along with my colleagues from uh, the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan, and, and, and UBC. And uh, for 11 years now, we've actually released a report, uh, a forecast, basically, uh, for, for the next 12 months in terms of uh, how prices will behave uh, at retail. And uh, last December, we actually released a, a pretty... Uh, scary report, we were expecting the food inflation rate to be at about 5%, which would equal to an increase of about $700 for an average family of four in Canada, uh, which would be historically the highest jump ever we would see in, in Canada. And, and it, it's happening, basically, uh, due to uh, two wild cards uh, that we actually anticipated. One the climate. I mean, I think the climate is really the one wild card we have to deal with every year now. And it really, the northern atmosphere has been hard hit by really harsh weather. Um, there's been some uh, heat waves, droughts in Canada, the US, Russia even. Uh, Europe uh, uh, was, was impacted by floods. And so that's really, it's it, Inventories are, are expected to be much lower than average, so we're expect we're hoping that the southern atmosphere will will pick up the pace uh, for for their summer, which is coming. Uh, but for on, for the time being, we are expecting processors to pay more. The other wild card, obviously, is COVID. Uh, COVID is really uh, hitting two things, two very important factors in food distribution. One logistics uh, to move anything around right now around the world is actually three, four times the price. And we don't see how it's going to change anytime soon, at least until probably mid 2022. It's costing way more. There's no cargo space. And then there is cargo space. It's basically costing more for food companies to move things around. And the other one is labor. I mean, labor, uh, there's a labor shortage everywhere, everywhere around the world, including Canada. And so to retain staffing, uh, and you need staff to get things done uh, in the food supply chain. Well, it's actually costing more. We're seeing collective agreements. Uh, just a couple of days ago, there was, uh, there was one collective agreement uh, settled in Quebec with an increase of, get this, 15% during the first year in processing. So you can tell that really workers are, are trying to capitalize on this really political momentum they have. They have more currency. Consumers are aware that they exist. They want them to, 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 to get paid more. But at the end of the day, someone is going to have to pay for all this. And that's really what's going to happen. We're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're here with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. I'll pick on David very quickly, uh, David. It's actually the easiest name to say in Quebec because everybody knows Charlebois, Rabbi Charlebois. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's right. So uh, 
and we're not related that's the unfortunate yeah thing. unfortunately yes uh i played that song at my wedding um so one question that i had relates to what you're talking about with raising prices and often you know for the people who might be in you know toronto montreal or might be in halifax and they they go to the nice grocery stores you know they're used to paying a bit higher prices for you know the quality products but what does this mean for you know, sort of your average modest family they might be on lower income they have lower disposable income what will that mean if prices on food ordinary food items goes up that's something that is is not really uh, focused on in this conversation yeah no absolutely i think well first of all when you walk into a grocery store you have access to over uh, 18 to 20,000 different products. So you have options as a consumer. And so what we're expecting from consumers uh, is that most will trade down or laterally. They may actually change brand. Uh, the one thing that we've noticed also this summer, barbecue season hasn't been all that great for the meat trifecta, by the way. So meats are 20% of all the money we spend on food. And Canadians are actually walking away a little bit from the meat counter. Uh, beef is up 10%, pork is up 5%, chicken is up slightly 3 4%. And consumers have noticed they're spending less. So we actually just got results uh, from a, a report coming out of Nelson IQ and uh, pork sales are down uh, 17%, chicken 12% and beef 6%. So this summer wasn't great and prices aren't dropping either. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, it's all about supply and demand. In, in meat counter economics, it doesn't work that way, really. Uh, grocers will defend margins as much as possible and they will set price point based on what they think the market can bear. That's basically how it works, okay? So they're not gonna bring down prices because Bringing up prices again after uh, a period of discounting is very, very difficult to do. So that's why they don't play around with prices. They'd rather sell less and protect margins than, uh, than basically give the product away for a while and, and try to bring these prices up again. So right now, what we're seeing are Canadians that are really more food literate. They know they know their options more so than ever before beyond the meat counter. So they'll look at vegetable proteins. Tofu sales are up, uh, for example. Meat alternative sales are up. So you can see that really Canadians are, are, are looking beyond the meat counter to save a, bit of mo to save a little bit of money. And, and obviously we're in the midst of an election. Um, in your view, have any of the parties put forward any kind of serious policy recommendations in, in terms of tackling rising prices for food first of all i'm actually shocked that inflation is actually uh getting a lot of attention during an election like often you have some very populous issues well important issues um uh, health care uh, for example uh you you often hear uh, issues like for example uh, public financing uh, women's rights. I mean, those are, these are all very important political issues, but inflation is not a sexy topic to talk about as a party, but we've actually, we've, we, we have heard a lot about food inflation uh, in, recent, in recent weeks, which is great. I mean, people are concerned about the cost of living. And uh, personally, I'm not overly 
worried or concerned about inflation in general in Canada because we actually are expecting the inflation rate to drop. But we do look at one specific thing, food inflation. And we don't see the same picture, unfortunately. We are, we are expecting food prices to go up. In fact, in the Western world, not just Canada, in the Western world, food prices are going up. It's go, they're going up in Europe. They're going up in the United States as well. And so Canada is not immune to all this. So obviously, you have to be concerned. But the one party that I thought really did a good job in tackling uh, issues that that is within a government's control, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, is the is the Progressive Conservative Party. I think Mr. O'Toole presented a platform a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was really interesting. You can't really control unless you want to uh, fix prices at retail or regulate prices at retail or nationalize food distribution which I don't think Canadians want. Uh, you can't really control food inflation, but you can control misbehavior. You can also look into issues that can bring prices higher, like the bread price fixing scheme, uh, which occurred for 14 years in Canada. Uh, so no one has actually received a fine. No one has gone to prison, where in the United States, whenever there's a uh, a price fixing scheme uh, scandal erupting, people do go to jail and they are fined. Not in Canada, unfortunately. And, and, we've, and, and that bread price fixing scheme was actually disclosed, uh, I believe now four years ago. And the investigation is still ongoing. So though, though that's the one thing that perhaps uh, a government can do to uh, kind of try to, uh, to uh, make sure that the entire supply chain is in sync. The other thing that Mr. O'Toole has presented is, a, is the possibility of in, installing a, a code of conduct, basically uh, encouraging more supply chain diplomacy and discipline. Because right now, grocers in Canada, unlike Europe or the United States, grocers have a lot of power and they're using it. They're abusing, <laughs> really. They're implementing fees, uh, there are only five companies selling 90% of all the food we eat in Canada. So they have a lot of power, a lot of power. And uh, so there, so Mr. O'Toole uh, has said that we need a code of conduct in order for processors to have a shot at uh, making a living, a decent living, which is really, these are things that governments can do. Oh, lob laws writes the laws. Whoever would have thought that. Uh, I, <laughs> exactly. One of uh, David's yeah. favorite topics here uh, has to do with, uh, speaking of price fixing, uh, supply management is something that uh, hasn't really been an issue in this campaign. It was in the last federal campaign. We did hear a lot about it and a lot of the uh, different kerfuffles among the conservative uh, sort of front runners. Uh, what is the kind of status quo on supply management right now? And how does that actually impact families. And if you could explain that as well, I know not, uh, not everybody is as well read as David on supply management, uh, nor are they critical. So sort of what is the impact of that? And, you know, could there be some modifications to make it so that Canadians would pay less in grocery bills every month? Well, yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, it's an important topic, but it's a topic that politicians tend to avoid now. And just talk to Maxime Bernier. Uh, he knows, I mean, the, the political costs that you have to pay as a politician to actually even question 
the existence of of the, of of our supply management regime is is a comes um, with great risks. That's basically the reality. That's why I'm not surprised to hear a whole lot now in terms of affordability. Affordability, I'm not convinced that supply management is actually pushing prices higher. Generally speaking, they're very stable. If you look at chicken, eggs, milk. Um, Canadians have been well served. The challenge, of course, is that we're seeing a very obscure and opaque industry. If you think of Buttergate, for example, uh, when all of a sudden Canadians actually realized that cows were fed with, uh, with a, a byproduct of palm oil coming from Asia, for example, when, when the Dairy Farmers of Canada's motto is all about Canada and Canadians through and through, uh, all of a sudden people realize and, and butter, the quality of butter uh, actually was compromised. Butter was actually harder. And so people were paying, people are willingly paying a higher price for butter, but they're expecting quality, but they weren't getting it anymore. So in my view, supply management or the quota system should remain in place because tomorrow, if we get rid of, of our quota system, we would actually see an entire industry collapse in Canada. We're not competitive. However, it needs to improve. And, and I think that dairy farmers, especially dairy farmers, need to be made accountable towards the Canadian public much more so than they are now. Right now, what we're seeing are politicians giving out checks and they, with no zero, zero conditions, which is really a mistake. And we'll have much more with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois after this break. If you want to uh, watch the entire interview, we will put that on our YouTube page. You can see our YouTube page over there on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We've got our full interview in video, so you can just see how we're looking. Uh, stay tuned here on the radio. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Listen up. This is part two of our interview with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. Yeah, so, I mean, on, on transitioning away from supply management, that's something that I've written about um, at length several times. Um, yeah, I know that it's something that you've kind of hinted at in terms of a possibility maybe at some point in re regards to what our options are. Um, from my point of view, I just can't find a justification to keep supply management when we don't do that for beef or for other agricultural products. So it kind of leaves me scratching my head. But I wonder, what is the best way forward? So if we are going to reform the system, uh, obviously keeping them accountable is, is important to ensure quality. But is there a way where we could open up market share maybe a little more aggressively than the 2% here, 3% here? Um, to have a more competitive marketplace, or have they just become so dependent on protection that um, that's not feasible? I, I, for the longest time, I thought that supply management was absolutely an obsolete system in Canada. Uh, the, but what I've come to realize over the years is that uh, there's too much fiscal baggage linked to supply management. 
the reason why I spent a year in Europe, uh, in Innsbruck, Austria, in 2015, was to actually interview many, many people in the dairy sector as the core system was ending in Europe. Uh, if you remember, uh, over 13 years, they actually just got rid of their quota system. And now Canada is the only country in the world with a quota system. And so I was there to interview uh, different dairy farmers, uh, co-ops, dairy processors. And I must say the regime in Europe was very different in Canada. In Canada, uh, it would be it is impossible to find one dairy farmer who's not satisfied with the system. In Europe, they were levies, uh, they were extra costs, uh, there were variations between regions, between countries, and frankly, there were a lot of dairy producers who were, di were dissatisfied with the system. Not in Canada. The other reality in Canada is that we're just north of a superpower called the United States. And, and the dairy sector in the United States is much more, much more competitive than, than in Canada. So if we are to retain some capacity uh, in Canada, in my view, we need to keep the quota system. However, instead of giving $1.9 billion just in compensation, whatever that means, I actually do think that we need to think about, you know, encouraging some dairy farmers who are bringing that level of quality down, that level of competitive down to exit the industry altogether. Because I actually do think that uh, we have too many dairy farmers who are just not performing well. And, and this, is the con this is the hard conversation we need to have in Canada. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us, uh, Dr. Chalabois. It's, it's been a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll have to have you back uh, soon uh, to talk more about food. My pleasure. Um, Yael, great guest uh, that we just had on the show, Dr. Charlebois. Uh, my Anglophone was showing in my original uh, introduction of him. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't hold it against and... you. It's cool. <laughs> Thank you. You're, on behalf of the Quebecois delegation, you have forgiven me. Yes, uh, with uh, the Canadien yeah. Francais, um, we, we will not hold you uh, hold you to it. <laughs> um, so don't worry. But that was, yeah, that was a very good interview. Uh, great to go into depth on that, particularly for someone who follows this very closely from an academic perspective, but is very well aware mm -hmm. of the policy debates and the different programs and seems to be like a pretty active stakeholder, you know, between the various lobbies and, you know, some of these groups. And he provides research and advice, and it really seems like yeah. he's got his, his finger on the pulse. He's got, a, he's got his finger in the pie, as it were. Very well versed, very well versed. So, um, yeah, we'll definitely have him on the show um, probably in a few months from now just to see where things are going. Like, if we, it'd be great to revisit that in six months or so and be like, okay, well, how bad has it gotten? <laughs> is it is it really that bad? Hopefully, it isn't. But um, yeah, I mean, what else? Uh, what else do you have on the docket for this week? I feel like uh, I was away for a week and I didn't. I barely looked at Twitter. I didn't turn on the TV once. Um, I had no Wi-Fi, so I was just completely disconnected here. Well, one thing and, I wanted uh, to get your take on, because I, I thought this was very interesting. Um, I mentioned it last week, and it, it fits in with many of our themes, particularly innovation and um, you know some of the great things that are happening on the Internet, is I was watching Hurricane Ida and uh, some of the coverage and the devastation, and, and obviously there's a, 
a lot of people who lost their homes, uh, some people who lost their lives. Um, but I was actually following the coverage of a couple of independent YouTubers who had set up their own channels and were live streaming and were pulling together live feeds from different parts of Louisiana where the hurricane was was kind of coming down. They had, you know, their own little Doppler reports and they had like the wind speed. And it was actually fascinating to see that a couple of dudes on YouTube could do that. I found the link because I think it was on Drudge or something. It was like live stream of the hurricane coverage. And it was just a dude in the basement uh, who apparently has a YouTube channel dedicated to weather tracking. And I, I went down the rabbit hole a little bit of, of the different storm chasers and stuff. You know, it's like the yeah. uh, the movie Tornado there with, uh, Jesus, what's her name? Twister. Twister. Twister with um, Helen something. Um, yeah. Oh, why am I? It's not. It's not Tia Leone, but she looks like Tia. Yeah, Leone. Helen. Wow, yeah. it doesn't matter. She was a yeah. big '90s. Helen uh, Hunt. Helen Hunt. Helen yeah. Hunt. Yeah. Big '90s star. <laughs> uh, it's similar to that. You know, the Storm Chasers, and they got their cameras. And I was actually following a guy live streaming on Facebook, and this. <laughs> I got really deep into it. This guy was hanging out in his truck just in some random part and he like had his he was live streaming to his audience and he's like all right and we're, we're behind this building it's holding and all of a sudden the roof falls off and you see all the rain and like you see debris <laughs> fall, going like across the street and it's like bro this is instantaneous live and there's like moments where it just go completely black and they're like oh we've lost bruce and <laughs> you know stuff <laughs> stuff like that but i just thought it was a very interesting way of of having uh, live events being broadcast. I mean, this is obviously a disaster, um, something that uh-huh. no one would wish on, on anyone. But to see the way that it was covered, I had more confidence almost in some of these live streams and what they were doing than, you know, watching CNN or any of these other channels. Well, you always see the video of, like, the guy, the reporter standing in the wind, and he's got his, like, rain jacket on, and it looks really windy, and then you just see, like, a guy with a Big Mac walk by. Oh like, yeah, or like a like a dude who's in waders, or he's like in a boat, and somebody just like shuffles by. Like it's super easy. Yeah, and and it's this kind of it's the decentralization of news gathering, of media, of experience, of narrative. I think this mm-hmm. is really empowering, and I, I really like this trend. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of bogus people, or there'll be some dudes out there, you know, doing terrible stuff or ridiculous things, mm-hmm. or throwing themselves up into the the twister or something like that. But otherwise, like the independent news gathering and the ability to broadcast that on YouTube and Facebook, you know, just from their smartphone. They don't need to have a big studio. They don't need to pay editors or producers. Um, I thought that was just a a fascinating way to look at it. I can only imagine what it would have been like uh, during Katrina and some of these other disasters. Yeah. Or I I guess there's I I guess the wildfires in California and B.C. There's probably a lot of people who've done that. Man, I don't. The, the guys who go into those, like, good for you guys, but like, uh, that's gonna be a no for me, Doug. There's just no way. There's just no way I'm going into the heart of a tornado or a wildfire. Like, there were some ones I remember the Fort McMurray fires, and there were people fleeing Fort McMurray, and the the fire had uh, essentially engulfed both sides of the road. And it just looked like people were driving through hell. Oh, man. Because everything was on fire. There was smoke everywhere. And they're just driving through. And both sides of this two-lane highway are on fire all the way up the trees. And so all you see is fire. It's like, oh, that's not... Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to volunteer 
to go drive into that with um, with a cam with a camera for YouTube, but I appreciate the people who do. Yeah, well, uh, these, these are the the renegades of our time. So I I thought that was a kind of cool little thing of new media, and it, really, I'm still all in on YouTube. I think YouTube is is one of the better platforms out there in terms of getting content you, live and uh, stuff. Are you one of those guys who pay for the 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 boosted up YouTube? I do not pay for boosted up YouTube. I pay for YouTube Premium. Uh, yeah, that's and it. And the reason I do so <laughs> is literally because I can watch it on my phone and lock it and still hear the audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a racket that is, eh? Yeah, but Just I. Like... It's still it's very worth it, and also you get no ads, uh, so that is an okay. added benefit. I think it's it's only it cost me about ten or eleven U.S. dollars a month. And considering the amount of time that I spend on there researching and, and watching other stuff, I, yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat true, worth true, it. True. Though you can use privacy browsers, things like Brave um, or yeah. um, Opera or some of these others, and, and you can get rid of those ads as well. But, uh, yeah, overall, just a very good product. Um, speaking of the uh, sort of new innovative market space, uh, I woke up to this. It was a tweet stream by the CEO of Coinbase, uh, which yes. is a crypto exchange. And he was discussing how uh, he was planning to launch a product, much like we discussed a few shows ago with Yield.app CEO Tim Frost, uh, these sort Mm -hmm. of interest-bearing accounts where people could deposit their cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, stablecoins, or whatever, and earn Mm -hmm. a a little bit of interest, 5%, 6%, 7%. And apparently he had... You know, had the team together. They were ready to launch the product. As a courtesy, they went to the Securities and Exchange Commission and said, hey, guys, we're doing this. We just want to make sure we're following all the rules and laws. Yeah. They proceeded to respond with all types of questions, threats, and perhaps um, investigations and lawsuits. And the SEC is now coming out in full force and, and basically has been saying that uh, they're taking civil enforcement action. And Crazy. that was a very big deal. I mean, this this came on the same day that uh, it was a, a crypto slaughtering. Uh, but it just goes to show it's something that we've been talking about, the smart crypto regulation. Uh, the SEC, I mean, if you've watched shows like, again, we're just mentioning a lot of shows now. But if you watch the show Billions, I mean, you know. Oh, great show. It came back. Oh, to, it came back. That. But on Billions, oh, so you see how active the SEC is, the courts, the different prosecutors, and just how active they are in following a lot of these companies getting insider tips and many times you know they're they're not always good actors over there at these regulatory agencies who knew yeah who would have thought if only there were a couple handsome radio hosts out there warning you about government overreach wouldn't that be great sure would that would really really be (laughs) helpful um so yeah there's uh there's a couple of other investigations on things like uniswap Uh, if you've ever used uniswap it's very interesting Uh, but it just goes to show that it's just kind of regulating after the fact uh which is is not legal it's not what we want in our institutions we don't want to be doing something today and then be told tomorrow that that what we did was illegal and therefore we're going to have some kind of action against us um, that's mm-hmm. not a good way to, to have a good business climate, particularly not for a new innovative sector like what's happening with crypto. But apply that to so much. Apply that to all of the different vape shops and companies across Canada and the U.S. who are constantly dealing with having to refresh home pages of regulatory agencies to make sure that what they're doing is legal. It's, it's this kind of stuff that 
Consumers are ready and willing. They're lining up by the load. Millions of people would love to use these products, would love to be able to spend their money. And it's the mm-hmm. regulatory agencies that are becoming very zealous and getting in the way of innovation and consumer demand. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I have much more to add to that. All right, good. My, my, my rant worked. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much a synopsis of yeah. of how I feel. So. It, it might it might be uh, that the the rant was was very good, or we just we've had some very good content the last couple of weeks. Um, David, it's it's been a great show speaking with Sylvain uh, Charlebois, uh, the food professor. Um, we'll be able to put up that full interview that you guys can enjoy uh, over there on our YouTube page. So please do uh, find that. Uh, go through the searches. Mm-hmm. You can find us pretty easily. We're our, uh, our big mugs are not hard to find, <laughs> and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll continue to get some good interviews and stuff. We've got some great stuff lined up, and uh, I think uh, there's there's a lot of stuff happening. Everybody's back from vacation. Summer's kind of over. Um, apparently, I'm not allowed to wear white pants anymore, so uh, things are changing. Oh, it's after Labor Day. Yeah, true, true, true. Not I that would, I follow I, these I rem- rules, but... I was going to say, I remember that from as a kid, but I have no idea what the heck that has to do with anything like i always never under i never understood it i don't i don't i don't think it makes sense anymore because uh you know it's a great you know contrast with those beautiful leaves uh all right david it was a pleasure uh let's chat again next week uh thanks to everybody for listening uh talk to you guys soon until next week And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
the United States of America is healed and well again. Say it. Hallelujah. Glory. 